I want to uh, leave, start with this question that, I, that I'd like to define this time together tonight. So the question is, who is God? Who is God? Uh, it's a fairly simple question, I understand, but um, it's one in which there are probably many, many, many different opinions about in our world today. Uh, you could consider some to think that God is, is a, a version um, perhaps a little bit grander, maybe a little bit more generous than jolly old St. Nick, that some of us would have this impression that, that God is, is the one to whom we make our wishes and our requests, um, and he occasionally dispenses out of his uh, bag of goodies, so to speak, to give to us when we're in need. And so when we, we come to him only when we're in need, we come to him when we have a want, when we have a wish. That, that could be one view of God. Another view of God could be that he's an aloof ruler, Somebody who is sovereign and ruling over the world, we, we confess that in some way, but who's relatively aloof and doesn't really get involved in the nitty-gritty of our lives, doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives and, and really, for that matter, what's going on in the world. He's somewhat just kind of like, the, I think, the song that says, you know, the, the old man is snoring, something like that, that God is just up there, but he's aloof from us. Um, Another view of God would be that he is the impersonal force. I was in a conversation recently where somebody used the word God and universe uh, as synonyms. Um, at different times would, would say I'm speaking about God, and other times say I'm speaking about the universe or the force of the universe. So there, there's this, this other option, that, that God is this impersonal force, the Star Wars option, kind of the, the force be with you, and that this is who God is. Um, a lot of diversity about, about this question. So many, uh, at least by the polls that say that so many Americans believe in God. The question is, who is God? That's the question. And does it really matter? Does it matter how we answer this question? Or does it just matter that we, in some ways, um, like some substance recovery groups, believe in a higher power? Is a higher power sufficient and good enough for who we are to be as human beings? Let me give you this quote from A.W. Tozer, the beginning of his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most revealing fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God? we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Tozer makes a point that I think is really relevant to us today. That He says that, that one's conception of who God is shapes that person in a deep way, shapes who they will become and who they will be. And so I want us to have that question and the, and the sincerity of that question, the significance of that question in our minds as we come to this text. We're continuing on in the book of Philippians. We've been uh, marching through since the 13th of September. And we now come to this, this the, the kind of queen passage of the, of the whole letter. This is the passage over which more ink has been spilt in New Testament scholarship, certainly, certainly in the last hundred years, than any other passage in the Bible, this passage. 
And it's a passage that really, it kind of um, climbs to the heights. It's like going to Nepal maybe and going up over a big, maybe 18,000 foot ridge and, and peering up at the summit of Mount Everest, the tallest point in, in the world, in the earth, and, and seeing the heights. And that's what this passage does. It really takes us up to the heights. Um, we're coming off of last week where we talked about the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom being the opposite of the way of the world. One being self-seeking, me at any cost. The other being others seeking, humble service, love at any cost. And how these two ways are really in, in absolute um, contradiction to one another. They're mutually exclusive. They can't both exist. And yet we live in a world where one is so popular and so prevalent um, that it's hard to understand how this other, this way of the kingdom, could truly be the way of life. Everything else tells us to go in this direction. And now in this text tonight, verses 5 through 11, Paul actually roots the way of the kingdom fundamentally in the way of the king. So he roots this way of the kingdom, this way of seeking the interests of others, um, considering those interests as more, considering others as more important than ourselves, looking after their interests and not only our own interests. This way of humble service, sacrificial self-humiliation, self-repudiation to benefit and bless others. Remember, we talked about giving the best of our creative energies to serving and caring for the rights and the needs of other people in our lives. This way that Paul has just painted for him, that he says he wants you to have the same mind, church in Philippi, this way is now rooted for Paul in a most brilliant way in the way of the king who's ruling over the kingdom. And that's what he goes into in verses 5 through 11. So it's primarily verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's primarily an ethical exhortation. Paul's exhorting the church in Philippi to live in this way that he's just painted before them. And now he's going to give them the, the, the evidence that cannot be de denied as to why this should be the case. But I actually want to save the kind of thrust of that exhortation for next week. And I want us tonight to come again with this question, who is God? Because as Paul begins to unravel a little bit about the nature of the king, he's He's giving us a glimpse, unlike any other place in his writings in the New Testament, of the God that we serve, the God that we worship, the God that we were just singing to. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. He's giving us a glimpse and a picture into the nature of this God. And he unpacks for us much of who God is in this section. And this actually defines so much for us in life. And I don't think we can ever overhear this or get too familiar with it. And the first thing that he says is that is that Christ, as he's, he goes into this hymn in verse 6, was in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be taken advantage of. He points us to this great humility and humbling of Christ himself, the Savior, the King, the Lord, the one that we proclaim as God over all. And he says, first, you have to understand that, that Christ existed in the form of God before he ever became a human being. And that would be to say that he had the appearance or the, the visual kind of display of the splendor of the, the heavenly glory of God was his own. There was no distinction between the divine identity and who Christ was before all time. He says, Jesus says this in John 17, 5. He says, Father, I want you to glorify me with the glory that I have had with you before, um, before the world began. Jesus is proclaiming something about his pre-existence in all time, that he existed so he's this universal emperor, this high king, this one before whom the, 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 the cherubim and the seraphim fall down and worship in glory and honor and lift up this, this, this king. 
But then the question is, what does he do with his high status? This is a status that can't be outdone. There's no status in the world that's higher than that of being equal to God. What does he do with it? What does he do with it? Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God something to be taken advantage of. He didn't count it as something to be exploited and used to his own ends to make more and more people his servants, basically. He didn't use it to to exalt himself and to glory in his position. How did he use this equality with God? What did he do in response to this, this status that he had, this exalted high supreme status as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? This is the shocking nature of the God that we serve. It says that he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The exalted high one who was in the form of God, had all the splendor of divine glory, exchanges that splendor, that wonder, for the form of a servant, for the lowliest form among human beings that anyone could ever know. Jesus humbles himself and takes on this form of a servant and becomes, in humbling himself, obedient to death. All the way, this, this humbling, this self-emptying, this self-repudiation was extreme. It was unlimited. It knew no bounds. It went to the lowest of places. This is like going from the height of the highs. This is, this, there's, there's not really any analogy that can do this justice. To the low of the lows. To taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross. There's a poetic structure to these six verses. The first three have to do with Jesus' humiliation. The second three have to do with God's response, where we'll go in a moment. But they, they have proportion except for this one phrase in verse 8, even death on a cross. The poetic narrative just comes to a halt right there. And we're left to kind of sit in this reality that Jesus himself, the one who is pre-existing in the form of God, the divine splendor, empties himself fully and takes upon the lowest form that he could ever take on. This is what Cicero calls in the death of the cross the most cruel and abominable form of punishment that is a shocking and offensive topic unsuitable for polite conversation. Can't have a lot of polite conversation in the church anymore then. The, uh, the cross didn't become the symbol of the church for many years after the death of Jesus. And it's because of this. It's because the cross was so repugnant to that day and age. It was the lowest form of execution reserved only for slaves and rebels of the empire. And this is what Jesus takes up. This is what Jesus takes on. This is the kind of self-humiliation, self-repudiation, self-emptying that he shows us is the proper response to his divine identity. It's to lay himself down in this most humbling of ways. We get a picture of this in in John chapter 13, don't we? When Jesus, dining with with his disciples, 
He says, it says he loved them to the end. And he takes off his outer garments and he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And then what does he do? He does what only the lowest of servants would do in that day and age and begins to wash his disciples' feet. This is his response. This is what he does. This is what he says. I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. So this is the humbling of Christ. But what happens in verse 9? Therefore, because of his self-repudiation, because of his self-abnegation, because of his self-rejection, basically, to, to give up all of his status, all of his rights, and all of his privileges to become obedient to his Father, to pour out himself in service and obedience for the sake of others. Therefore, because of this, God, what? Has highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. And given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is this transformation that takes place because of his pouring out that God says, I will vindicate my servant. And he exalts him to the highest place. He exalts him precisely because Jesus has poured himself out. Precisely because this is the proper manifestation of the divine identity that Jesus possessed in the form of God with all the splendor of his heavenly glory. This is the way that divinity is expressed through Jesus. It's not, it's not that he was no longer divine when he became man. He was still divine, always divine. But it was that this expression of his divinity was true to the very nature of what it meant to be God himself. And because it was true to who God is, true to the, the, the self-giving, radical self-giving love of God, God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that is above every name. That's code language in the Bible. For what scholars know as the tetragrammaton, what we sometimes use is to say Yahweh, this unspeakable word, the name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. It's not that Jesus was any more divine after his suffering and humiliation upon the cross, but it's that he was given a new function in his divinity to be that one through whom all the world would give glory to God the Father. He was given the name above every name, the name of Yahweh. And as one who was given this name, Yahweh meant the creator. Israel, the Jews, understood God to be God in this inexpressible and glorious throne, the universal emperor who reigned and ruled over all. And they understood the nature of the divine identity to be worshipped as the God who is creator of all things and the God who is sovereign ruler over all things. Creator and ruler. These were the twin aspects of divinity, according to the nation of Israel. And they worship God because of the fact that he fulfills these functions. He is creator and sovereign ruler. And now, into this identity, we have the suffering servant brought into the nature of who God is. So he's not only, Yahweh is not only creator and sovereign ruler, but he is precisely creator and sovereign ruler as the humble and crucified servant. So that God is now revealed in as much as the creator and exalted ruler as he is in the humble and suffering 
servant of all creation on the cross. This nature of God is the humbling, self-sacrificial, self-giving love of God in Christ is equally as much God and basically as much God as is the God who reigns over all the earth. We get this quotation in verse 11. It's not actually technically a quotation, but I wanted to take them a moment just to go back to our, our reading, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 45. This, the context of this passage in Isaiah 45 is that the God of Israel would one day be known and manifest as the true God of all the earth. The only God, verse 22, for I am God and there is no other. God does not share his godness with anyone else in all the universe. And by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. He says, to me every knee shall bow. That is to Yahweh, to the true God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess or swear allegiance. This is a passage about the uniqueness of the God of Israel and about the absolute and utter sovereignty of the God of Israel and about the fact that the God of Israel is the only God who can save. And in its context, it's looking forward to a day. It's looking forward to a day when the God of Israel, who is known to be the creator and sovereign ruler, will be known to all creation to be this sovereign ruler and savior. That's what this passage is looking forward to. So when Paul picks up this passage in this, this statement in Philippians 2 and says that at the name, he says he gives him the name above every name. That is the name of Yahweh. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There it is. Every knee should bow. Isaiah 45, 23. And every tongue shall confess. There it is. Isaiah 45, 23. Every tongue shall confess that what? That Jesus is Lord. To what? To the glory and God of, to the glory, uh, to the glory and praise of God the Father. What Paul is saying is that in Christ Jesus, this moment to which Isaiah the prophet was looking forward, the day when, when God would be known as the ruler of all and the savior of all, has come to pass in the humble self-abnegation, self-repudiation of the humble servant Jesus, who has been declared to be son of God in power by the resurrection who has now been lifted up and is the one through whom all the world will come to see that this God is the true God over all the earth. This God is the true God over all the earth. Who what? Has universal dominion? Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And some will bow someday. There's an implication in this passage that some will bow, as Isaiah 45, 24 says, in shame. They will come ashamed those who were incensed against him. There will be a day, and how encouraging this is to the Philippians who are suffering in their proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be a day that will come when every knee, every knee shall bow before this risen and exalted Savior Jesus. And every tongue shall confess that is universal worship, universal dominion and universal worship that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other Lord. There is no other dominion. There is no other authority that has a right to rule and reign over your heart and over your life. This in a context for Paul when he knows very well that the theme and the phrase of the Roman Empire is what? Caesar is Lord. There is no other Lord but Jesus. And every tongue will confess that one day. Who is God? Who is God? 
God is one who is as much the creator of all things and the sovereign ruler over all things as he is also the humble, sacrificial, self-giving servant who goes to death on the cross. And there is in this then many things that we can draw out for our lives today. Let me put it in the words of Richard Balcom. He says, the radical contrast of humiliation and exaltation is precisely the revelation of who God is in his radically self-giving love. He rules as the sovereign and exalted ruler, only as the one who also serves. He is exalted above all, only as the one who is the lowest of the low. There are these two aspects to the God that we serve. And how then do we respond to this idea of who God is that the Bible reveals to us and that Paul expounds for us here in this text? How do we respond? There's really only one proper response, and that is a response of worship. A response to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. King of all kings, oh so highly exalted, all for love's sake became poor. That we respond in worship. We respond also in proclamation of this great God. This is the best news. This is the God that we take into the world on mission. We've been talking a lot about mission. This is the, this is the core reality that we take into the world with us. Is a God who is not only exalted and supreme over all things, who made everything, but it's a God who is humble, a God who is lowly, a God who identifies with the poor and the meek and the suffering. A God who's present among, among uh, all kinds of, of indescribable horrors of our world. A God who stands beside and in solidarity with the creation that groans and awaits the consummation. This is the good news that we take into the world around us. That this is the God that we proclaim. This is the God that we worship. A God who humbled himself. A God who draws near to the lowly. And so we take this God into the world. And this doesn't mean that, as it does sometimes today, that God, who is a God of self-giving, radical, sacrificial love, is just your best friend who wants to make you feel better. Sometimes we take this message and we run in that direction, don't we? But this is the God who is a consuming fire. And who, all the while that he is a consuming fire, is a God who is lowly and draws near to the lowly. A God who loves the poor. A God who understands you in your most darkest hours. A God who comes alongside. Revelation 5. As one of the elders said to me, Weep no, no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is what's happening in the, in the heavenly realms right now. The lion of the tribe of Judah appears. The roaring lion of the tribe of Judah appears to us as a lamb, as the slain. The wounds of the cross have an eternal glory, are the subject of an eternal praise. And this is the God that we bring with us into the world today. So we worship him and we proclaim him as Lord over all. And finally, and for next week, we emulate him. We become like him. The king determines the way of the kingdom. The self-abnegation, self-repudiation, humiliation, su surrendering all rights and privileges 
determines for us the way of life. In worship, in proclamation, in example. This is how we respond to the God that's painted here before us in Philippians chapter 2. I've asked Matt, I want him to come up now just to lead us in proclaiming the greatness of our God in this song of worship. Stand with me together.